0: Call for the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly, for a voice of crying is heard out of Zion, for we are greatly confused, for death has come into our ghettos, to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. Channel housing, project your monster sound. Language land the for sacrificial violence. Change out council, At the camp, young friends yeah. for the yeah. of the prophets yeah. our we curse with guts, crack holes, and bones with pots. doors with the of all We're
2: We're black people. We're All I'm going to make them oppressive. Don't you get away crying We have you get up, stand up, and turn back to its true trend.
0: The most and the last.
2: Can't you
0: The mighty lions from time ignite the flavor of what I am. Tossing fire, leaving Babylon
2: trying, trying to escape this futile. Ooh, child, this country trouble is too wild. That's why we got more than two styles. Too deep in the situation, too sharp. And though the road is rocky, I'm ready to try. The next mile to bring sight to the blind man. It's to than a child. We will survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jungle is specialist, predator and survivalist.
1: Welcome listeners, All I see is it's time for an awakening on the Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia, this is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective we find this program necessary because Hosea 4-6 states, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4-7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot, Brother Reggie, and Brother Ralph. The number to reach us to join the conversation is 215 215- 2537263. That's two one five, two five three seven two, six three. The listen only line, if you don't have computer access, access to a smartphone, or iPad, or any other device, is 559 726 1300. That's five five nine, seven two six, thirteen hundred, 1300. And the access code is 9585. 9585- Nine zero 0 and pound. Again, that access code is 9 5 8 and pound. We're streaming live. Well, if you had to tune in app on your smartphone, your iPad, your desktop, just in the tune in search engine, type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you'll see the icon to listen live. Or you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an Awakening. That's www.blacktalkradio.network.com forward slash time for an awakening and hit that green button to listen to the program live. Drop us an email at time at gmail.com. That's time for an awakening at gmail.com. We also have a fan page on Facebook. Just go to uh, Facebook and in the search engine type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by Brother Reg. And before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program streaming live on Facebook. Tonight, we're scheduled to have a special guest join us in conversation tonight. Historian, researcher educator and anthropologist. The doctor, Renoka Rashidi is scheduled to join us this evening and we'll be right back to get things started after a brief word from our sponsors.
3: Our moderator, our distinguished guests,
4: brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs>
1: Antiquity to the present. Our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m. with your hosts, Elliot and Reggie. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And uh, before we get started this evening, I want to thank uh, some of the listening audience that came out to Deliverance uh, Evangelistic Church yesterday. We had the the black farmers up for their uh, scheduled health fair. Uh, The church had a health fair there, and they asked uh, me to uh, bring some of the farmers in that came in from Virginia with some of their winter crop. And I want to thank the listening audience, some of the listening audience that came out and uh, not only participated in the health fair, but patronized our farmers. If we don't help our farmers, then uh, they won't get help. We need to be out there for our farmers and for all black businesses, support black businesses every chance you get, every opportunity you get to recycle our dollars we should always do so. Uh, Brother Reg will be joining us shortly. Brother Ralph is on the line with us.
5: Hey, how you doing, Brother Bo? How are you, sir? Oh, I'm fine.
1: And tonight, we're scheduled to have with us, to join us in conversation, historian, researcher, educator, anthropologist, Dr. Renoko Rashidi will be joining us. He may be with us already. Dr. Rashidi? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm good, how are i have great. Brother Reg will be joining us momentarily, but we're on with Brother Ralph.
5: Hey, how you doing, Dr.
1: Rashidi? Okay. You know, before we get started this evening, I just want to uh, say to our guests, you know, I, I, every time we have him on, I, I say the same thing to him in the beginning. I just want to thank him for his work, his travels. He travels the world, not only documenting our people, but the, the scattered members of our people. That's among other folks. He goes in, looks for our people where they are. He don't stay in five-star hotels. He goes right to where our people are, stays with them, shares their stories, documents the evidence, and comes back and shares these things with us. I want to thank you again for your work, Dr. Rashidi, and what you do. All right, but I, I need to
4: nip some of that in the bud. I love five-star hotels. <laughs> if i can afford it i'd stay in one every time there's nothing wrong with being comfortable but i love what i do okay and i've now been to 105 countries with a few more on the horizon i've lectured in 60 countries and that's quite a remarkable achievement i think that if i wanted to toot my horn the most what i would say is that most of that travel has come with very very limited resources you know i'm not affiliated with uh Um, a university Mm -hmm. nobody's footing the bill it comes from the sale of books and dvds and lectures and scraping and it just shows what you can accomplish if you have a vision and if you have a will if you believe that the ancestors have your back and if you believe you have a mission and i certainly do uh, believe all those things
1: you know before we get started uh, with our topic this evening um Three questions, Dr. Rashidi: uh, Where have you been? What did you see? And when did you get back?
4: <laughs> All right, well, um, it's been a while since I've been on the show.
1: Yes, it has. And
4: I guess that covers a lot of ground. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's Black History Month 2015 now, so I'm doing a lot of domestic travel. But in terms of uh, international travel, or travel out of the U.S., most recently... Some of the countries that I've been to are, I took a group to Cameroon in December. I'd always wanted to go there. That made African country number 29 for me. Very, very interesting.
1: Oh, boy. I think we lost. I've been. Oh, okay. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, one of the rare places that I've been. where Africans control most of the businesses. That's so rare. But in Cameroon, most of the hotels, the stores, and what have you, are owned by Africans, especially a group called the Bamileke. And then um, also, while I was there, visited a group called the Bajolet. And these are, this is a group of so-called pygmies there. They have different names. In Central Africa, sometimes they're called Batwa. In other parts of Cameroon, some of them are called Baca. So I was able to spend some time with them. And then, you know, a lot of time in France. My daughter lives there. The great museums are there. A lot of African artifacts are there. But one of the most interesting experiences I've had recently was in Athens. Now, as much as I hunt these African communities down, I really, really spend a lot of time in the museums looking for African artifacts. It's a fascinating experience. And I've been to Greece twice before. Mm -hmm. The first time the National Museum, I think it's the Archaeology Museum, was closed. It was being renovated for the Olympic Games. And then the next time I went, the museum was open, but the Egyptian section was closed, and what was called the Bronze Age collection was closed. So sure enough, I thought, since I had to pass on the way back from Cameroon back to Istanbul, Turkey, and then go to France, I would stop in Athens, and I got a five-star hotel, I stayed right across the street from the Parthenon in you know, this ancient Greek building. And one morning, Sunday morning, sure enough, I went to the museum, and the museum was open. This building was over 100 years old. And, you know, the Greeks spent a lot of time in Africa, especially Kemet, so I just assumed there would be a lot of good stuff in there. So I get there, I wander through the museum, and I, get, and I find a few nice artifacts. And I get to the Egyptian section, and sure enough, it's closed. It's a big iron door closing the section. And I was so disappointed, thinking maybe this is the three-strikes law. Maybe it's not my destiny to ever see this. So I expressed my disappointment to a couple people in the museum, and somebody said, a white woman, well, hold on a minute. Just have a seat if you like. And I sat down, and she made a phone call. She says, no promises, just have a seat. And sure enough, within about ten minutes or so, a guy comes, white guy naturally, with a big set of keys and opens up the Egyptian section. He doesn't let anybody else in there but me. He closes the door behind me, turns on the light, and says, okay, here you are, wander at your leisure, take all the pictures you want. And I was able to go through the Egyptian and the African section and the Roman parts of the museum, just me. i would never had an experience like that before. This is not a little (laughs) tiny museum in an out of the way city somewhere. This is the National Museum of Greece. And I was able to have carte blanche, took a lot of pictures. And that, you know, if the ancestors weren't with me that day, I don't know what else to attribute it to. I've never had an experience like that. <laughs> Recently, I've been in Colombia lecturing among African Colombians. Colombia is significant because it has the largest concentration of Africans in the Hispanic uh, world. And these Africans were hungry for knowledge of self, lectures that were just really, really, really well received. And my two most recent books on Asia and Europe are now being translated into Spanish, lectures in, not Trinidad, but Barbados, Guyana. You know, I've um, I've been very, very active, and some of the experiences have been extremely rewarding. So in a nutshell, those are some of the places that I've been since I've been on your show last.
1: Uh, you know, the, the topic that we're going to talk about this evening, or one of the topics, is the history of rebellion by African people against European domination. And before we get started with that topic, I, I want to kind of preference it with, with this. You know, in Ferguson, when our young people were met with the violent response to peaceful protests, uh, late last year, there was a debate among, uh, circles, uh, in the African American community, uh, about whether we should respond violently, uh, you know, with stuff thrown around about the uh, young people who were rioting and this, that, and the other. And it was, you know, it was brought up again about the nonviolent movement of the sixties. And that's the way for our people to, to meet any resistance. Uh, would I, I'm glad that you're on this evening tonight, uh, Dr. Rashidi to give us a historical perspective of our people's response to abusers, of our ancestors, and whether it was always nonviolent, which I know that it wasn't, but uh, I'm kind of glad that you are tonight, and we're going to kind of t- take it from the continent and bring it over to the Americas, whether South America, Central America, and and North America, maybe for last. But uh, let's start on the continent, and 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 maybe a good area to start, but you tell me. I, I heard you on a uh, YouTube video talk about the Zan Rebellion. That's one I didn't know really much about and i don't think our listening audience knows much about the captivity of our people that went further east uh i, I think th- it was arabs that took our people into uh what is now iran and iraq but uh, to talk about that uh the rebellion maybe we can start it off with that dr Rashid. no
4: i don't want to start with that i want to preface it with, go ahead a uh, response to your remarks and then we can go there okay first of all resistance takes many different forms it could take something as innocuous as showing up late. And I think this whole notion of CP time is a form of resistance that, was, um, that came out of enslavement. Okay. That Africans engaged in different kinds of resistance. Okay, so that's one thing. And I think the form of resistance is dictated by the situation that we find ourselves in. I think it's very important to say that. Number two, we never want to start with enslavement. Never. I realize it's important, and I'm going to talk about the Zionist Rebellion. Okay. But we don't want to start with that. Okay. Because I would argue that the worst crime you can commit is to teach a child that their history begins with enslavement. So we don't want to imply, even um, in the most innocent form, that our history begins there. So if we wanted to talk about ancient African resistance, one of the things we could talk about, and in fact where I would start, would be the resistance to the people called the Hiskos, The Hiskos, or the rulers of foreign lands, are the first known invaders of Africa, and they come to us about 3600 B.C. The African family couldn't keep it together, and so an armed group of invaders called the Hiskos invade the country uh, and uh, stay there for about 150 years. The Africans call this period the age of national humiliation, and the people who formed what we call the eighteenth dynasty of Kemen or the eighteenth royal family more or less expelled them. And they're led by people like Amos the First and because a lot of African women were involved. Amos and Second and Ra and Kamos and um Amos Nefertari and um Amos the First. And they inaugurated a new golden age in fact, the 18th dynasty has been called the greatest royal family to ever mount a throne. So I wanted to begin with there. But much later... Um,
1: but Before you time, did, before uh, you leave that, uh, Dr. Rashidi, these Hyksos, uh, what type of people were they, uh, according to some of the documented evidence you have found?
4: You know, there are, to my knowledge, I don't know if there are any depictions of them. Okay. I think that they were so hated by the people of Kemet that they destroyed all the represent, representations of them. Or maybe they just never had any rep, uh, representations in art because they were such an insignificant people who contributed virtually nothing to Kemet itself. Okay. But as far as we know, if we had to describe them, they would be, I would describe them like the people of, let's say, Syria today, or the people of Iraq or or, or parts of Turkey, non-African people. Okay. Indo-European element, probably some blondes among them, but a lot of them would have looked, I think to some extent, like our typical perception of Arabs. They were not African people, that okay. much we know. They were foreign invaders of Africa. Okay. And then nearly, I'd say, 2,500 years later, now let's, let's just give the framework. About 640 or so, the uh, Arabs in history, you know, begin a series of jihads, and part of that um, leads to the subduing of parts of Africa. And this is, you know, if we look at the history of Africa and Islam, there's a very um, integral relationship. Muhammad sent his closest companions, peace be upon him, sent his closest companions to Africa, to Ethiopia. He was told, if you look to Ethiopia, there you will find a land of righteousness ruled by a king, under whom no man is persecuted, is the land where God will bring you rest from all of your afflictions. And the earliest Muslims, the companions of the prophet, went there, and they were so hospitably received that later on the prophet is supposed to have said, he who brings an Ethiopian woman or an Ethiopian man into his house brings the blessings of God there. We know the role of Bilal, one of the great African Muslims, who was tortured for his faith, an Ethiopian, an African became so close to the prophet Muhammad that he he became known as the third of the faith. Muhammad is supposed to have told Bilal, Bilal, last night I dreamed that I went to paradise, and I found that you had been there before me. But over a period of time, Africans are captured in these jihads by the Arabs, and some of them are taken as captive people to what is now southern Iraq. And between the 7th and the 9th centuries, these Africans engaged in three massive rebellions. They are called the biggest one, which lasted from 868 to 883. It's called the Revolt of the Zanj. The word Zanj can still be found in the island of Zanzibar today. These are the captured Africans who were taken to Iraq and treated in a very, very brutal fashion. This is the largest revolt of uh, enslaved human beings in history. It's bigger than the Revolt of Spartacus, and it might surprise us to know it's bigger than the Haitian Revolution. Some of these Africans actually marched on Baghdad. And many of their descendants are still in southern Iraq today. It's a magnificent story of courage and resistance. And it's an African story. And it's a story that needs to be told. Okay.
1: Uh, Dr. rashid let's... Um, I heard you uh, earlier talk about, and uh, not earlier on this program, earlier in other uh, 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 discussions, I've heard you talk about the Dravidians in mm-hmm. India. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people are involved in different religions now, and, you know, some of our people are involved in Krishna. But I was surprised to understand and to know from you that one of the earliest resistance was by an African named Krishna, who I think that the uh, aspects of the religion was based on. Talk about the Javidians and, and Krishna, how he fought the uh, invaders.
4: Well, you know, African people are the first people everywhere. That humanity begins in Africa and we should dismiss this nonsense from the beginning that that people keep repeating that Africa is named after a Roman general. That's just silly, and it's an insult. The Roman general was named after Africa. So Africa is the birthplace of humanity, and those ancient Africans, these black people, migrate from Africa all over the world. And the Indus Valley, what is now Pakistan and India, is no exception to that. And the people who built the great civilization of the Indus Valley, South Asia, or called the Javidians. Now, the Romans and the Greeks refer to these people as Eastern Ethiopians, not the Ethiopia of today, but the word Ethiopia itself is a Greek word, which means the land of the burnt-faced people. And these are black people in South Asia with straight hair, naturally straight hair. And they built this great civilization, and just like the Hiskos invaded India, I'm sorry, the Hiskos invaded Kemet, the Aryans related to the Hiskos invaded South Asia. They were drawn to the wealth. Of these fabulous cities built by black people and combined with earthquakes and the disruption of the uh, Indus River these Africans were eventually scattered and the people who took over were white people that we call Aryans and the javinians resisted them now you have one figure in particular called Krishna and Krishna may have been a mythical figure kind of like a Moses or an Osiris or something we don't know if he was real Perhaps there's a kernel of truth to him. The name Krishna means the black one, and he personifies the resistance of black people in South Asia to the people called the Aryans. And he is uh, resist the imposition of this racist, color-coded uh, system that we call the caste system, which is the basis of Hinduism. Eventually, the people who were subdued the most, or I guess the greatest victims of Hinduism, or these Aryan invasions of India, which many people are attempting to deny now, will be the people called the Dalits or the Untouchables. And these are the descendants of the people who were victimized the most as a result of those invasions. Some people would refer to the Dalits or the Untouchables, or our cast of India as Adi Javita, or pre dravidians and that even before the Dravidians themselves, they come closest to constituting the indigenous population of India. So it's a fascinating story, and it's a story also, like the rebellion that doesn't get told very, very much, and so that many people are not even aware that you have black people in India. You know, um, when I do presentations, a lot of the time I focus on what are called the invisible people. Africans in Palestine, for example. Do you know that there was a Black Panther Party among the Palestinians? There are black people in Palestine. Same thing in India. There's a Dalit Panther Party. You talk about resistance, you have a group of black people, a group of untouchables, or Dalits they are called, who named their principal organization after the Black Panthers of the United States. So these are very, very powerful forms of resistance. I know you didn't ask me, but let me introduce two other elements. Mm-hmm. You also have a Black Panther Party in Australia. There's a, I'm in Los Angeles now and the Pan-African Film Festival is going on, and there's a film tomorrow called Black Panther Woman, and it's about a sister, an indigenous sister in Australia, who was a part of the Black Panther movement. You had a Garvey movement in Australia. Can you believe that? That Marcus Garvey had actually planned to visit Australia before he was railroaded by J. Edgar Hoover. That Amy Jakes Garvey kept in contact with indigenous um, aboriginal uh, leaders. And I say that because Australia is the next big country I'm going to go to. And then you have the South Pacific itself, where you have a history of Africans who were in, black people who were enslaved. We don't know much about their resistance, but all of these things open up new chapters in terms of researches that our people need to participate in. I would say that most of the history of African people has still not been written, and it should be written from the perspective of resistance, oppression, resistance to injustice, the idea that we were not just victims, but African people always fought to maintain their basic humanity from the most ancient times, and that uh, resistance continues, as you know, until today.
1: Uh, Dr. Rashidi, uh, women, our women were always prominent during uh, European incursions and invasions on the continent. Uh, Talk about some of our women that that fought European invasions into the continent to uh, enslave some of our ancestors?
4: Well, there were many of them. We've already started talking about the Hiskos invasion and occupation, and there you have sisters in the struggle named Tetisheri. You have a sister named Amos, a sister named Amos Nefertari. These are women who were active participants in the liberation struggle of our people and are regarded as heroic figures in the history of Kemet. But later on, you have women like Al-Kahina. This is another very mysterious figure, who lived in probably what is now Algeria, who was a Berber or the people that the Greeks were to call and the Romans were to call Moors. The word Moor is a European term that means black, it means scorched. And this is where the word Moor comes from. It comes out of a European lexicon. And the Moorish um, resistance or African resistance to the Arab invasion of Africa is most personified by a woman called Al-Kahina, al K-A-H-I-N-A and that may not have been her name it may have been something like a title she was a kind of a prophetess and she led a scorched earth policy against the Arab invasions of North Africa around 1300 years ago 1325 years ago because her sons participated in the Moorish incursions into Spain in 711 so Al-Kahina is a very very important figure And then you have the most famous of them all, and, of course, that's Nzinga, who is an African woman born in what is now Angola. She lived in Central Africa. Uh, She's born around 1550, and she is the person who most clearly um, personifies African resistance to the Portuguese invasion of Africans. She actually is a pan-Africanist. She tries to build a coalition of African armies in Central Africa to eject Portuguese. She is truly a warrior queen. So you have a lot of them. There's a sister in Ethiopia named Judith, sometimes called Judith the Fire. But certainly Al-Kahina, the women who were involved in the Hissco's resistance uh, in Zinga, uh, they, they're very, very prominent figures in our history. And I think that we would know more about them if we hadn't developed such a patriarchal attitude where history becomes history and women are more or less written out of it. And I think we have a duty as historians uh, to not only include the role of women, not only include the role of people of color in general, and Africans in particular, but especially the role of women who have pretty much been left out of the history books. Uh,
1: before, I, I just wanted to track on what you just said. Do you, do you think, uh, in your historical opinion, Dr. Sheedy, that that comes from a, a European influence or, or European values being pushed on our people?
4: I do indeed. You know, if you look historically, I would say, and other people might take issue with this, but it's been argued that in the earliest form, God was identified in a feminine form. And I, I cannot argue with that. And then certainly you have women like, for example, here's another figure that is kind of, um, also she may be more legendary, and the role of several women may be combined into one, and this is the Kentaka. Or, or Queen Mothers. The Romans were to call these women Candace. There's a tradition that one of them uh, organized a huge army in the, what is now the Sudan and fronted off Alexander the Greek, preventing him from um, invading deep in Africa. One of them is supposed to have fought the Romans and actually marched back into Kemet from Cush and took over the um, the uh, Temple of Aset at, on the island of And so the role of women, I think, has been very, very pronounced in African history. In fact, it is said that the worst thing you could do was to disrespect your mother. And so I I think that women have, um, we begin to look at history from a Eurocentric perspective, and since Europe is such a patriarchal society, you know, this is where the idea of Mike makes right comes from, that a dog is a man's best friend, that a woman had to, was more or less dependent on, on the male, but in Kemet, in ancient Egypt, the woman could will and inherit fortune. She could bring suits to the courts of law. There's no record in the history of Kemet that I'm aware of, not one incident of sexual assault, of rape. And I think, all, in fact, in Kemet, the line of descent is traced to the female side of the family. So in Africa, traditionally, women played very, very prominent roles, but with the subjugation of Africa by the Arabs and Europeans,
1: of course, that's been reversed. Okay, uh, Dr. Sheedy. Before we move off the continent and uh, and uh, come further west uh, to the land of our di- diaspora, I, I, in my uh, limited research, I, I ran across the name Nzinga being used several times for both men and women in the resistance. Uh, it was one king that I ran across named Nzinga, but uh, he was also called Alfonso I. Do you know anything about him? I think he was in the Congo.
4: I just know the name Alfonso the I. Okay. I know that he comes, if I'm not mistaken, in the period just after Nzinga. If I'm not mistaken, perhaps during the same time period. But I know I don't know much about him. Okay. I know there's a beautiful icon of him or uh, cameo of him in the... Um, B B F, the French National Library in Paris, but there's a lot of information about him. Certainly, Jay Rogers writes about him in "World's Great Men of Color," and it wouldn't be hard for people to do any re- to do a little research. And that's something that I want to encourage. We just don't want to be, at least this is how I feel. I don't want to just spoon feed our people all the time. I want to create in our people the desire to want to know, the desire to want to dig and do a little research. I think if we were to have a criticism of our people, and there are many that we could have, I think that there's a sense of that it's up to other people to do our research for us. I think that's why the, that we seek for people to tell us what to think, how to feel, how to react. We look for a kind of a messiah on many different levels, whether it be in the form of scholarship or leadership in the community and what have you. So we want to encourage people to want to go and do research to go and dig a little bit about the things that we're talking about, and certainly there's a lot of information on alfonso, but I'm not in, in, in any way an expert on him
1: okay before we came uh, our people came to these shores we were we spent time in a lot of these dungeons that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, I don't think the English built. Many of them, they were built by Spaniards and Portuguese, am I right, uh, Dr. Rashidi?
4: Certainly the Portuguese were, were big. Okay. And then, of course, you have the Dutch. A lot of times they get left out, and, then, and which reminds me of another resistance story I hope to come back to. And then, of course, you do have the Spanish, but you have the French. We can't leave them out. But certainly the Portuguese were, I think, the first big Europeans in the modern sense who were involved in enslavement in Africa. In fact, I think one of the biggest dungeons that you have, which is called Elmina, is a Portuguese word which means the mines. And this is one of the big dungeons along with Cape Coast Dungeon in Ghana.
1: You visited these sites, and uh, you've, you've documented uh, dungeons for bo- uh, men, women, where they separated them, and children. Uh, talk about what you've seen and, and the, the horrors of how people were were housed in these places, these hellish conditions
4: I've been to about six or seven of them I've been to Elmina and Cape Coast each one a few times and they're horrible and then there's um, I've been to Gory Island in Senegal, that's where you have the infant's dungeon So you had a dungeon for men, you had a dungeon for women, you always have that the men and the women were separated and you also had a dungeon interestingly enough for, for skinny people You know, they wanted to fatten you up. They had a special dungeon where you would be force-fed. But in Gory Island, I've been in it, taking photographs of it. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't believe it, if it's a dungeon. So, I mean, if you want to talk about the horror, think about that. You're in the men's dungeon. You've been beaten and bruised and battered. You're in in shackles. You're in a stinking hole. It's hot. There's no electricity. There's no toilets. There's no ventilation. You've been branded probably already like an animal, and then your wife, your mother, your daughter, your sister, your grandmother, your auntie, your niece is in the women's dungeon. And I don't have to paint a graphic picture of what might have happened in those women's dungeons and how our ancestors were abused and exploited. Mm -hmm. And then in the distance, you can hear your child calling you, Daddy, Mama, come get me. I'm cold. I'm scared. I'm hungry. Where are you? And this went on for so long that it became a way of life. And you have different ones. You have, for example, in Benin, a place called Ouida that I've been to a couple of times. And Ouida wasn't so much a dungeon but a fortress. And this is where the enslaved Africans, the captured Africans, were, were kept. And then they would be awakened up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning with no advance notice, and they would be forced to march to the sea about five miles away. And along the way, you march around what is called the tree of forgetfulness. I think you had to march around this tree seven times that you were supposed to forget everything in your past life and prepare yourself to be an enslaved person. And then in Tunisia, I've been to a place called Kebale. Now Again, we don't want to leave the Arabs out in their role in softening up Africa for the Europeans. Kebele is in southern Tunisia, and I was told that Africans will force march there from as far away as Mali and Senegal. And there they would be sold to the Turks during the time of the Ottoman Empire or the Europeans, you know, or taken to other parts of the Arab world. So these are places of horror. They're places of memory. Most recently I've been to Fort James, which is in the Gambia. And this is where uh, Kunta Kinte is supposed to have been taken from. In fact, I was in a dungeon where he's supposed to have been kept. Mm-hmm. So these are pretty horrible places, but I highly recommend that Africans in the Diaspora go to them, just like we go to the pyramids and we are inspired in Kemet by the Valley of the Kings and uh, Karnak Temple and the pyramids and what have you. You can see what African people have accomplished, and therefore you get a sense of what we are capable of accomplishing. But it's also important to go in these dungeons, you know, to go through the door of no return, you know, to get a sense of what your ancestors went through and then the power that comes from going back. It's a remarkable experience, my brother, to go back to Africa, to go back to some of the very places that our ancestors were taken from. That is perhaps the greatest form of resistance, the fact that we survived the hells of North, South, Central America, and the Caribbean, and that we, some of us at least, have gone back to the motherland with the idea of redeeming Africa and becoming strong again. I tell you another form of resistance. The greatest form of resistance is just marrying a black woman. I tell all the brothers that. <laughs> a lot of times black people be talking about, "I don't see race and I don't see color," and we're all the same." And then we're horrified when we have a Mike Brown or an Eric Garner or a Trayvon Martin, because we realize you cannot just put your head in the sand and say race doesn't exist when it's convenient. It's a reality. It's a reality. We have to address that, and I think that picking a mate that's from our community, loving, honoring black women, is another form of resistance. Resistance isn't necessarily rocket science. It takes basic forms. Spend spending your money with other black people, joining an organization of like-minded people, listening to your radio show, supporting your show. I mean, all of these things are forms of resistance that anybody can engage in, And I think that sometimes we miss the force for the trees, because we think that resistance is a a form of rocket science. It doesn't just mean getting out there and going Nat Turner on somebody. Although it's important that we recognize the Africans who led the rebellions, but resistance can take many different forms every day of our lives, and I think that it's something we need to be constantly reminded
7: of.
1: Um, I I want to get uh, Brother Reg and Brother Ralph involved. But let's let's come west, um, and you you kind of lead me in this uh, trek, Dr. Rashidi. Uh, the first enslavement of our, our ancestors started in the islands, and then was in South America before it came to North America. Uh, to, uh, give me that uh, that uh, how that went.
4: Well, you're asking me to talk a little, give you a synopsis of revolts in South America and the Caribbean. Yes,
1: okay. because I'd like to save North America for last.
4: All right. Well, you know, the resistance took place in Africa itself. One of the here's a research project. I'd like to have some people do some research on the Africans who attacked those dungeons. That should be a wonderful form of uh, research. Africans who like a lot of times people say those Africans sold us, literally old Africa, anything because the Africans sold my ancestors. A lot of people talk about that, and very few people who say it have done any real research. Okay. That's what you heard. We grew up hearing those Africans sold us, and a lot of us accept that almost instinctively. But if you're going to talk about that, you owe yourself, you have an obligation to talk about Africans who we know resisted enslavement in the motherland, who fought against it. That's number one. And then, of course, you know the resistance took form on the ships. There were revolts, there were mutinies. The most famous one is the Amistad, but there were others. And then, of course, you have what are called the Maroon Communities, and these are communities of Africans in the Americas who refused to accept enslavement. Africans who ran away, went into the bush, and established their own communities. Now, the greatest of these communities, or the, one of the most significant anyway, is Palmares in Brazil, which lasted for 100 years. This African community in the interior of Brazil, enslaved Africans, lasted from 1698 to 1798. For 100 years, it couldn't be cracked. And the greatest leader is a man named Zumbi sometimes called Zumbi dos Palmares. And then you have that all over South America. You have Maroon communities in um, Colombia, in Peru, in mm-hmm. Bolivia. Some of the greatest of the Maroon fighters came from Suriname. The Dutch were probably the coolest of the slavers. And Suriname is a former Dutch colony in, in South America. And you have a number of Maroons. You have, for example, we're talking about sisters again, a sister named Alida in Suriname. Alida was a beautiful African woman. I think all African women are beautiful. And she was abused by her, or desired at least, by the slave owner. And the slave owner's wife got wind of it. And one day, after the slave owner had been in the field, she said, the white wife, she said, go look in the kitchen, I've got your favorite dish. And he looked in a pot, and there was one of uh, um, Alida's breast cooking in the pot. Somehow the sisters survived and went into the bush and bore three children. And the greatest of them was a man named Boney, who was the greatest, in my opinion, resistance fighter in the history of Suriname. And his followers became known as Boney Nagers. Now, one of the things about the Maroons is that over a period of time, and this happened particularly in Jamaica and Mexico, Mm -hmm. so much pressure was brought to bear on them that some of the Maroon leaders sold out. And they signed treaties with the the slavers, saying essentially that we will grant you your freedom, but from now on, any Africans who escaped from the plantations and Haciendas would have to be returned. And some Africans signed those treaties. Boney refused to do that. Just like in Jamaica, Nanny refused to do that. So you have these heroic figures in the Maroon communities. You have another outstanding Maroon community in Mexico. Led by a man named Caspar Yanga, one of my um, soon-to-be tours will be to Mexico, the African heritage in Mexico, and we're going to visit the community of Yanga where there's a statue of this African resistance leader. So you have these maroon communities all over the Americas. Uh, you have, of course, in Haiti, in uh, the Caribbean, the Haitian Revolution, led by people like Christophe and Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And Madame Felicity, a lot of times we don't talk about the African women in the Haitian Revolution. There's a sister in Haiti named Baina Bello that's done great work on African women in the Haitian Revolution. And so the important thing to emphasize is that resistance is a natural reaction to oppression and injustice. And like any people, Africans fought to keep the family together, they fought to maintain their basic human dignity. And it's a story, again, that needs to be told again and again and again. And we're going to talk about enslavement. Let's talk about resistance to enslavement.
1: Well, we're joined in conversation tonight with, by historian, researcher, educator, and anthropologist, the doctor, Renoko Rashidi, is with us this evening. You can give us a call and join this conversation at 215-253-7263. That's 215 253 6th Street. Reg. Before I uh, go to you, let me let me take this call. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from?
8: Yes, Brother Timothy South Philly, coming from calling from Philadelphia, sir.
1: How are you? You have
8: a, a great, renowned guest who's very learned and has traveled well, like you always do. But um, uh, Dr. Rashid, um, it's very interesting how Marcus Glory's influences has has hit the continent of Europe. It's been amazing to me. As a matter of fact, I know of a segregated ship during World War II with black soldiers and white officers. And when those white officers hit the shore of Europe, the first thing that they wanted to know when they went to a tavern about Marcus Garvey, they were very impressed with Marcus Garvey. His dress, his style, his organizing, and another person from Europe very impressed with Marcus Garvey, Mussolini. He copied the styles, uh, the, the organizing, and that look that military style of uh, Marcus Garvey. I also want to say to you, I'm familiar with the Djidjidjan people of the Indus Valley. And one reason I studied the Indus people of the really Valley because they had a strong period, 35,000-year period, like we did in the Nile Valley. And the one thing I want to ask you, sir, uh, they were fighters. They were also peaceful people. They had a lot of good history about them. My question to you, uh, did the European uh, give them such a wicked thing called the caste system? Did that come from the Europe being invaders giving them that in exchange for uh, the Davidian people trying to fight them off? I'd like to hear the answer on that.
1: Thank you, Brother Timothy, for your call.
8: Yeah, we talked about
4: Davidians earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time with them. The Davidians are the people who built what we call the Indus Valley or Harappa Civilization and I guess it's comparable to Kemet or Sumer in Iraq, a black civilization in early Asian history. And they were overrun by the people that we call the Aryans or the Indo-Europeans. They offered uh, tremendous resistance, and as uh, Brother Elliot pointed out, one of the figures that emerges from that is the man called Krishna. Marcus Garvey lived in Europe. Marcus Garvey lived in London, died in London. I've actually been past the house where he lived in, And he gave speeches in in Paris. And so Garvey was, um, was international. Garvey had chapters, as I mentioned, in Australia. And so the impact of Garvey is phenomenal. In fact, I guess it's important that we talk about Garvey as perhaps one of the high points of resistance in the Americas and that this is now the 101st year of the foundation of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, of which I'm a member and officially the traveling ambassador for the UNINACL. So certainly Garvey was significant, and certainly the Dravidians played a very, very important role in, in black history.
1: Uh, you, uh, Timothy also asks about the caste system. Was it started by the invaders?
4: Well, the caste system is the, the legacy of the Indo-European invasions or Aryan invasions of India. And it really parallels, but it has a religious uh, foundation also, It's very, very similar to apartheid um, South Africa, where you have the whites on the top, you have what would be called the mixed races or coloreds in the middle, and then you have the masses of conquered black people on the bottom, and then outside of that you have the Dalits or the untouchables. The difference between, I think, apartheid in South Africa and the caste system in India is that it also has a religious foundation and it's the foundation of the, of Hinduism. You cannot have caste without Hinduism, and you can't have Hinduism without caste, because the caste system is the framework of Hinduism. It shows a hierarchy. Again, here it goes very quickly. According to Hindu scripture, um, the creator god is Brahma, and from the, the head of Brahma or the mouth of Brahma sprang the Brahmins identified with the color white, And from the shoulders or biceps of Brahma sprang the shatryas, or the rajput, identified with the color red. They are the warriors. Brahmins are the priests, the intellectual aristocracy. And then underneath them are the Vaishya, the farmers and merchants, identified with the color yellow, who, according to this tradition, sprang from the thighs of Brahma. And then from the feet of Brahma came the Sudras, identified with the color black, and they were the slaves of the other caste and then outside of them were the slaves of the slaves, the outcasts or the untouchables. So all of this is a part of the Indo-European or Aryan uh, in, in a legacy of invasion in India. So to answer your question, yes, it's fundamentally linked to those invasions of white people in ancient India.
1: Okay. Uh, 215, area code, yes. what, what's your name? Where are you calling from? It's Moe, called North Philly. How are you, Mo? Yeah, I'm doing fine. I'm Mo, fine. we got a little. Uh, turn, can you turn your radio down in the back? I think we got little interference. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we, well, go ahead, Mo, because yeah. i still still a little interference. Is that a little better? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a question for. Um. In my read, I
7: found that the uh, prop Muhammad peace be upon him. That his mother was from Ethiopia. And you ever uh, in your no, research
4: I've never heard that about the Prophet Muhammad's mother. I have read and it's written by a man named Al Jahees, a black man who wrote a book called The Book of the Glory of the Blacks Over the Whites, that Muhammad's grandfather was a black man. He is described as black as I believe black as the night in magnificence, something words right. that effect. And he was a Sharif of Mecca. So on his okay. father's side, you he right. know, he's a black man, not his mother's side
7: yeah well his mother Well, I, I read that his mother was from Abyssinia which is now Ethiopia today right
4: I've never read that
7: yeah well, well I, have, I have read that and even on, on historian Jay Rogers said that he, he, the prop mom was a black man yeah
4: well I, I okay. need the research that my brother. Yeah. I, I never saw that reference but I appreciate it and I will follow up on it
7: thank yeah. you Now, my, my, my question is like all that area I thought that one time Turkey, Iraq all of that The original people of the area were black. The original
4: people everywhere were black.
7: Okay, well, 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 where did they, well, how did they, you know, what I'm trying to figure out, how did all of a sudden they become the the Turks and the people from Iran and Iraq, the the so called, how did they change colors? How long did it take for them to become, become white like that?
4: I think tens of thousands of years. Humanity comes out of Africa, black people. They go into these northern parts of the world. They're affected by these ice age conditions. And over a period of time, they adapt and mutate. And this is where white people come from. White people are black people that got caught, well, formerly black people that got caught up in that ice and were transformed both physically and psychologically. There's only one race, and that's the human race, which has its roots in Africa.
7: Okay. So is that... I'm trying to why I ask, I'm trying to figure out it's like with Michael Jackson, that that bit of LIGO. You said he suffered from that? That's how to be white or
4: I would guess something like that. I think if there's no sunshine and it's very frigid for thousands of years, you lose a lot of your melanin content. Now, I don't know if right. I would relate that to what Michael Jackson the disease that he was suffering from. But I guess it must be something very similar to that. You know and I know that if you don't have any sunshine for a while, you become pale. If you're out in the sun for a long time, you get darker. Now, if you multiply that by tens of thousands of years, I think that you could see the possibilities of the transformation into what we call different racial groups and the emergence of
7: white okay. people. Now, Another question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, have you ever heard of a warrior, a warrior named Ufamondiaphorio? Yes okay what, the, what, what exactly what country did he did he come from? The reason why I'm asking like this whole concept that the Italians got called a mafia right Now my understanding they got that from the Moors or the Muslims when they went up 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 into into Europe and that the word mafia itself is an Arabic word, not an Italian word now can you break that down because you, you know Italy and especially Sicily.
9: It's very close to Africa. You can see Africa from Sicily. I was just in
4: Sicily a few months ago. Palermo, everybody i looked at, I'm looking at as if they're the godfather or something like that. And both the Moors and the Arabs had a big influence on that part of the world, including the language. It wouldn't surprise me to know that if the mafia, the word, and maybe even the concept has some sort of North African roots, no. Uh, Dan Fodio comes from West Africa I believe okay. he's from Senegal or Guinea And again that's a part of our history That needs to be studied a lot more I think he would figure very actively In what we're talking about tonight In terms of African resistance to oppression He is a um, a warrior figure as
1: you know Okay, okay. alright thank you bro I appreciate thank that you, Thank that. you for your contribution thank Mo you. Alright uh, 404 area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from?
10: This is Brother Human out of Atlanta.
1: How are you, sir?
10: I, I'm doing good. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask Brother uh, Rashidi if he could clear a couple of things up for me. I, I saw a, I think it was a documentary years ago by Brother Eugene Adams, and it was the early presence in Asia. And I was wondering if uh, Brother uh, Rashidi could, uh, uh, clear, clear up the name of those people. As what I understood people? it, in that it's the name of the people in Southeast Asia who built the civilization on Angkor Wat.
4: According well, to, Angkor, Angkor Wat is a building. It's a temple complex,
10: mm-hmm. and the,
4: it's a part of the Kingdom of Angkor, and the people who built the Kingdom of Angkor are called Khmers. And the Khmers live in Cambodia. In fact, I'm taking a group to Cambodia in December before I get off the air, which is going to be soon. Apparently, I'd like to leave my phone number and email address, people can contact me. But you're talking about the Khmers, talking about Cambodia, and the Khmers were the building, were the builders of the great kingdom of Angkor, which is the classical civilization, a black civilization in Southeast Asia.
10: Now, why did he he refer to them as Nagar? The 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 naga and I I never really understood that you know I, I never talked to anyone to get a clarification on it so I was just wondering uh, you know was, was is it any validity to that or
4: well you do have the term naga n a g a naga and it's a term that is used a lot in the history of Southeast Asia India Cambodia Vietnam and what have you and remember now this was an area that was dominated by black people at one time. Mm -hmm. You have the kingdom of Angkor in Cambodia, but in Vietnam you have the kingdom of Champa, and this is another black kingdom in central Vietnam. You have the name Naga that's associated with black populations in northeast India. But in terms of why he used that term, I guess you'd have to ask them that. I don't want to find myself in a position where I'm defending or advocating a position that I may not fully understand, but those are a little bit of that's a little bit of information about the Naga and about the great kingdoms of Southeast Asia.
10: Okay, one one other one other one. That was referenced, as I understood on another documentary made about uh, the Egyptians in the temple of I think with the temple of Seti, we had the four different categories of man and I think the last one was was referred to as a uh, Kamahu. Was that ever a actual term used by the Egyptians? Uh, apparently the so.
11: Time? Apparently
10: so,
4: and apparently it was a term that was applied to white populations in Libya and perhaps even Western Asia. Now, it's actually not a temple. It's a tomb, and it's a tomb of a man named Seti I, who is the father of the much more famous Ramses the Great. And there are four representations. There's a Kushite or Nubian, an African. There's a Chemite, an Egyptian, an African. There's what they call an Asiatic, which would have been like the Hiskos that we talked about at the beginning of the program. And you have the Libyans, these white nomadic types in North Africa. And what Seti attempted to do, or the people who painted that, was to show the distinctions in ethnic groups Or human races as perceived by the people of Kemet at that time. And we're talking about about 3,275
10: years ago in the 1990s. All right. right. Thank you, brother. And I really enjoy your show, man. I really enjoy the show. Hey, thank you for your call.
1: Call again. All right. Brother Reg, because I want to move on into uh, While we still have Dr. Rashidi, move on into Some of the rebellions here in the uh, Continental United States, but Brother Reg Jump jump in, I know you've been uh, Wanting to get in here Brother Reg
5: uh, This is Brother Ralph Elliott. Go ahead, Ralph and, and I really wanted to ask uh, um, Dr. Rashidi about uh, Bermuda um, I'm You know, I'm planning on a trip there, and um, I've been doing a lot of research and reading. And come to find out, there have been a lot of uh, revolts and resistance right there in Bermuda to this very date. Um, And I was researching the history of that island, and um, they said, like, they, they brought a lot of West Indians to Bermuda, and all of a sudden the white population got a little fearful because the black population grew. I think it's like 63% of the island right now. Did you do any research on the island of Bermuda?
4: Yeah, a little bit. Bermuda is not in the Caribbean. That surprises a lot of people. It's not West Indian. It's in the North Atlantic. Right. And when you go there, my suggestion to you would be bring a lot of money. It's a very, (laughs) very, very expensive place small island. In fact, it's probably a couple islands. The capital is Hamilton. And in Mm -hmm. Hamilton, you have a fairly new statue of a woman. I think it's made of bronze. It's right in front of the courthouse of a woman named Sally Bassett. Right. Sally Bassett was an African woman who was burned at the stake by the British in around 1600. She was accused of um, giving poison to other enslaved Africans so that they could kill their master. She denied it. But on a blazing hot day, around 1625 or so, this black woman was burned at the stake. And so Sally Bassett, I think more than anybody else, personifies African resistance in the Caribbean. And again, resistance takes different forms. Sometimes there were open, organized revolts, like people like Nat Turner, of course, we know about. But other times enslaved African women put poison in the master's food or did whatever they could, or they w- worked real slow, or they set fire to the master's house or to the master's crops. So resistance takes different forms, and I, I want to emphasize that. But in terms of Bermuda, Sally Bassett is the person that you want to, to follow up on, and there certainly was resistance there.
5: I appreciate that, sir. And Now, oh, my I second pleasure. question, you brought that up earlier. It was about the Moors. Now, I've read different things about the Moors. I know some people today that call themselves Moorish American. They had the so-called Moor card and all this. Um, Now, I've read where the Spanish used a word called Moro, and it was derogatory for Muslims. And then the English used the word Moors just to talk about, in a derogatory way, people of north africa with you um but I, I i read all these different things and i want to get it from you sir what is the i mean the term more what is i, I know about timothy drew i read up on timothy drew uh noble juali and and the moorish science temple and i believe that's where a lot of our folks are getting this from but i just wanted to get it from you sir um, what what that term again is it derogatory or or what you
4: mean the word moral or more itself
5: well they're saying are one in the same one is spanish and one is english but i don't you know i really don't know that's why i was asking you
4: well i want to repeat that the word more comes out of the greco-roman world first time we hear that term it's applied to Black populations in Northwest Africa, countries okay. like Morocco, Mauritania, Algeria. This was considered the land of the Moors, and certainly the Romans talked about them a lot. The word Moor is used extensively in Roman literature about North Africa. So the word Moor is not an African word. Okay. I mean, we need to be very clear on that. As many of the people I talk to who call themselves Moors reject the name Africa, and they go around repeating this foolishness, that Africa (laughs) is named after Roman General Scipio Africanus. That's really, really an insulting thing to say. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Scipio Africanus was a Roman general who engineered the defeat of the Carthaginians. And as a result of that, he was given the name Conqueror of Africa. So Africa is not named after a Roman general. A Roman general got his name from his relationship to Africa. So I want to be very, very, very clear on that. Because I hear that all of the time, and it's nonsense, and it's an insult, and it's completely inaccurate. It's what we might call an urban myth. And so the word "moor," we find it extensively in the Roman world. You find the word "moor," and you also find the word Niger, N-I-G-E-R. Both of these words imply black or African. Now, the Moors, as you know, fought alongside the Carthaginians. They fought alongside Hannibal and they were eventually, and the Carthaginian army was eventually defeated. So the Moors then fight in the Roman army, and then we find them fighting against the Arabs who invaded Africa, and then they convert to Islam, and they are at the forefront of the movement of Muslims into Spain in 710 and 711, and they occupy Spain for a 1,000 years. They are in power in parts of Spain from 711 until 1492. And you have different movements that go into Spain at different times. For example, you have a group called the Almoravids, And then you have a group called the Almohads. So there's different groups of Moors. And part of the confusion is, is that there were not only Moors in Spain, but there were Arabs in Spain, some of whom were black and some of whom were not. Now Shakespeare used the word Moor and Negro as synonyms and over a period of time after hundreds of years the word Moor became almost universally used for black people in Europe. And so even the ancestor of Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, Ibrahim Hannibal is called the Moor of Peter the Great. But the word Moor itself the name has changed and it's come to mean different things at different times. For example If you go today to the country called Mauritania, which still has the name Moor, the people who enslave Africans there today are called Moors. Right. You know, so the word Moor is very, very, very complex. And I think what a lot of people have done is simplify it. And a lot of times it comes just what is essentially anti-Africanism. So people will call themselves a Moor or Hebrew Israelite or an Aboriginal American Simply because they don't want to identify with Africa, they don't want to identify with enslavement, they may never tell you that, mm-hmm. but a lot of it comes out of an anti African bias that I have no tolerance for and,
2: <laughs> and I you think know what doc,
4: themselves more don't understand that
5: and you know what doc you 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 hit you hit the nail right on the head because a lot of these people they will also deny that slavery existed in this country like we were right. already here so <laughs> i I've, I've I've heard that urban legend before also. And there are a lot of folk out there that is they're repeating this, and I, you know, it it gets to me sometime when I hear that. Um, and one last thing, and Mo sort of hit the, um, you know, um, asked one of the questions, and you answered it already. But I was reading where the early Persians were black, but you sort of answered that when uh, when you answered Mo's questions that our people came off the continent and settled elsewhere and became mutated so um, yeah.
4: and you could say that about virtually the whole world you could say that the the first people of china were black uh-huh. or the first people in the western hemisphere were black people people who came out of africa if we didn't know it before we can trace it through dna analysis i think the problem is we are taught that Africa is the worst place there ever was. Africa is the jungle, Africa is where King Kong lives, Africa is where Tarzan hangs out, Africans is where people live in trees, et etc, et cetera, et cetera. These, This mythology that's very negative about Africa is ingrained in our minds. So many of us grasp almost anything so that we're not identified with Africa. How many times have we heard people say, thank God for slavery because the God is out of Africa? I'll call yep. me anything but an African. You know, I think a lot of us would rather be called turds in the toilet than African, because we have taught that Africa is a horrible place. And I think a lot of these people call themselves Moors are the victims of that. And they may not understand that, but it smacks of anti-Africanism, and the Hebrew Israelites are even worse. They are hostile to Africa. And I, I'm very offended by that.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Brother Edge, jump in. Yes. Uh, Dr. Rashidi, good evening. Good evening.
3: I have a I have a question to follow up what what Ralph just stated. I just want to have an understanding. I've heard a term, blackamoor, use utilized uh, was used toward. I know they have a lot of decorative art and figurines. Exactly. Was 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 that is that that term was that termed primarily used to describe that type of artwork, or was it type used at one point in time? Describe the, the, uh, uh, the, a certain type of Moor.
4: It's a little bit of confusion about that, because you okay. also have another word, and that word is tawny Moor. And so Ivan Van Serteman seemed to apply that, you know, again, we're talking about a period of over a thousand years mm-hmm. of mixture in Europe. Those Moors who came into Spain in 711, led by people like Tariq and Tarif and what have you, those were Moors soldiers. They didn't have a lot of women. And so naturally, there would be some intermingling. You know, many of those more certainly would have intermarried with European women. And so you, over a period of time, you might have different kinds of women, just like you have different shades of African Americans. You have Ben Carson. I hate to use him as an example. Let's find somebody else. <laughs> LeBron James, a darker brother. But you also have lighter-skinned black people. And let's face it, most of that comes from in a mixture. It comes from a time, in this case, when black men could not protect black women. But in Europe, you have a kind of a mixture, I think a lot of which had to do with the fact that there weren't that many black women in Europe. And so over a period of time, the word blackamoor might have been applied to those who retained a lot of their original melanin content and African features, blackamoor. Well, as Donnie Moore might have been those who were Moors, you know, in terms of culture, but who had um, physically were much lighter as a result of hundreds of years of being in Europe. And certainly the word black more came to be used very, very extensively, I think, in the later phases of European history, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and that's when you see a lot of that artwork that you're talking about manifest itself.
3: And my follow-up question to you. I know that you've done extensive research uh, regarding the African's presence uh, throughout the world. And Ellie and I had a discussion in reference to uh, someone that posted um, a message on the Facebook page in reference. And and, and and let me start this way. I have a statement, and then I'll I'll just give you a little bit more information. I'm listening. Our actions shape our identity, and in turn, our identity shapes our actions. This is something I posted on the page. And the reason I posted this on the page, you always speak about our glorious history, the things that that, that, that Africans have done throughout the world. We know that in, in terms of our people, you had different people doing different things at different times, at different points in our history. If you were speaking to someone that didn't have any intellectual learning about our history isn't it fair to would it be a fair statement to tell them that we come from kings and queens we come from people who originated languages uh originated uh, uh speaking originated architecture and these things of the sort or would it be something else that we should tell our people I, how we should look at our past and our history.
4: No, I would say that works for me. We can certainly say that we have kings and, queen, kings and queens in our lineage.
3: Okay. Yeah,
4: I, think, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that we came from kings and queens. Look, a lot of times, when I, I mentioned earlier on, I'm very proud to say I've lectured in 60 countries now. That's a lot. And a lot of times I deal with people don't, who are not very sophisticated about African history. And so to break the ice, I might start my program by saying, what do you think of when you think of Africa? Let's just get right down to it. And, you know, because I want to engage the audience. And one person might say, whoa, Dr. Rashidi, when I think of Africa, I think of wild animals. That's valid. That's what we see on TV. You see the nature films. We see the herds of wildebeests and zebras and giraffes trying to keep from getting eaten by lions and, and hyenas and stuff. And then you see... And then the person says, I know, Dr. Rashidi, poverty, because you see that. You see starvation, and you see babies with big bellies and can't get enough to eat. It's very sad. And the third thing that I get very consistently is disease, AIDS, malaria, and now Ebola. So we have an overwhelmingly negative image of Africa. And so I start to break that down. I say Africa is, you know, it's where the first people came from. And Africa is where people first stood on two feet. And Africa is where people first wore clothes and had a house, not a hut, a house. Africa when people first wore shoes. Africa is where people first charted the stars in the heavens and built a boat and buried the dead and played music and had art and so forth and so on. So I think it's important that depending on who the audience is, we, we become very basic because history has a propaganda value. Let's not lie about it. History is not just dates and facts and figures. It's, it's life, and it's our life. And you can directly measure people's status in the world by the emphasis that they put on their history and culture. Strong people cram history down your throat. Weak people are told they don't have a history. That was a long time ago. I ain't got time for that. <laughs> I need to be talking about how to put money in my pocket. What, what happened a thousand years ago or yesterday, I ain't got time for. What's that got to do with me? And I think that, my brother, that you're doing the right thing, that you have to judge the audience, that there's nothing wrong with returning to the basic basics and talking about the things that a lot of us here on this show take for granted or sometimes take for granted. And other times, if the audience is more sophisticated, you can be more nuanced than that. So you have to be a good judge of the audience.
3: And and what i like to do to, on, on that por- portion, on just – the sophisticated audience. To me, you we've had our history usurped, uh, adapted, changed by other people, and with and and my thing, my bone of contention with the people who are sophisticated is they have a problem with their own people because within our race we had people that are laborers, we had people that were illiterate, but on the flip side, you see European history. They've had those same type of things, but they always, when they go to teach their children, they're always teaching their children the best of the culture so they have something to 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 look up to, to build exactly. up. I think it's the same okay. thing that we should do for ourselves, whether the children out there are hanging, walking around with their pants, hanging down or not. Tell them they're from kings and queens, and maybe they'll change their behavior. That's that's just my premise, and I can't understand that you know we have people that all, sometimes all they look at, I'm talking about people who are culturally sophisticated, conscious, everything that you try to say, they're always, always looking for the negative piece on it so they can have an argument or to win an argument. And sometimes yeah. this brass tacks. It's like it's a given that we had laborers. It's a given that we had people that are illiterate. It's a given that we had people that were thieves and robbers. But you have that, Europeans have that same history. But what are what are they promoting? They're promoting the best of their culture, whether it's fact or fiction.
4: Well, you get an argument from me there, brother. <laughs> Preach is what I would say. I agree 100%. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to have a sense that we can <laughs> something positive to the world. You know, we get enough of the negative, and we have to bend over backwards to counter that, because most of our history, I would say, is positive. We gave humanity to the world. We gave culture to the world, and we should be proud of that. And our people need to know about that. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about who you are and having a sense of identity and having a sense of, yes, my ancestors accomplished great things, and so therefore I am obligated to accomplish great things. And that's what history is all about. And anybody who says different than that is deluding
3: themselves.
1: Let's go to uh, Reggie. You, you all right?
3: I am I, done. I'm
1: <laughs> <ill>. <laughs> Let's go to 215. area code. what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes.
8: Yes, how are you, brothers? You know, uh, uh, Professor Rashidi, I, I heard oh, you open I, sorry, up Sorry, I early cut you about, off
1: there, but you got one more question. Uh, this is Timothy. Yes. Okay, yes. go ahead.
8: Uh, yes, I was going to say, Professor Rashidi, I heard you open up early about a museum that you visited in, in Greece. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say to you that from my readings of Gerald Massey and Godfrey Higgins, he himself, as a European, has said some of the best stuff was stolen and brought to England. Have you ever been to the museums in England and compared them to Greece or Rome or wherever
4: i would I have been to most of the major museums in the world. you know I'm not saying that to boast, but I have and the British Museum is one of the best in existence. If white folks can't do anything else, well, it's steal they can gather some stuff in fact. I think museums are largely a European phenomenon. So the British Museum in London is magnificent. they got all kinds of stuff in there, especially stuff from the Nile Valley. But I would say that the greatest museum in the world is the Louvre in Paris. I, it's a it's former palace, and they've got some of everything. And you have African, you have Egyptian museums in Italy. You have at least three Egyptian museums in Germany. The Germans were among the first big uh, European Egyptologists. And you could go from country to country. You could go from Switzerland. You could look at Sweden. You could look at Denmark. You could look at Scotland. You could look at all of these places and find African artifacts, particularly Egyptian artifacts in these museums. So when we talk about reparations, that's one of the things we should be talking about, the regathering of, our African artifacts. Reparations takes different forms. We were stolen and a lot of our art was stolen and it it's in these museums right now. And I've had the pleasure of being in, as I say, virtually every major museum on earth in search of the African presence. And now the question is, what do I do with the information? I've collected so many thousands of original photographs. I'm an elder now, at least a young elder. I'm 60 years old. And so the question becomes, what do I do with it? How do I disseminate it? I'm not at a university, and certainly I don't want this information to pass away with me. And so one of the things that we should spend a lot of time talking about is the dissemination of the information, what we do with it, how we pass it along to the youth, intergenerational transmissions of wisdom. I think that's a very important subject. When a scholar passes and the information, their archives, their photos are scattered to the far corners of the earth, that's a sin. That's a crime against humanity, and we should seek to see that that never happens again.
8: Thank you very much for that, sir. Thank okay, you i I'm going to try to visit some of those museums. Do
10: that, thank yes, you for, sir. Thank, thank you for you your call, sir. Good. Thank you, uh,
1: uh, Doctor Rashidi. Uh, let's move to the continental United States where we got some more time. Let's talk about uh, to start. How much
4: time do we have? I
1: thought we were out of time. No, we got some more time. <laughs> we got at least another half hour. We're going to be on. If All you right, could, if well, let you me do stay this with before us.
4: We, we go anywhere else. Let me just, so that people have it, let me give my contact information. Go ahead. So that people can reach me. Of course, I prefer email. You can always email me at Renoco at Hotmail.com. And Renoco is spelled R-U-N-O-K-O. So you can reach me at Renoco at Hotmail.com. And after the show, you could call me at area code 210-232-7272. That's 210 210- Two thirty-two, seventy-two, seventy-two, and I have a new website. simple, easy to remember, renokorashidi.com. You can go there, get information about my tours. You can get my bio, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Can you purchase I'm a lot of these DVDs and, and uh, books from the site also?
4: Well, I'm putting it on there now. It's a brand-new website, and so it's truly a work in progress. I do have free uh, books available, a small travel book, my book, African Star, The Black Presence in the East. Another book called Black Star, The African Presence in Early Europe. A number of DVDs. So if you don't see it on the website, again, a person can just email me directly, and I'll send you a list, and that will tell you how to get the information, and that is hotmail.com.
1: We'll say that a couple more times before the program yeah, is over. Uh, Dr. Rashidi, uh, let's start by talking about two, two of uh, the largest that I've seen. Yeah, you're the historian. Um, in this country, uh, the Stono rebellion and also Andres rebellion in 1811 in Louisiana. Uh, from what I've seen, it, it it doesn't have a particular person that spearheaded these rebellions. That I've, it, but I want that's why I want you to talk about them. Um, no,
4: you, I can stop you right there. I'm not an expert on either of those. Okay. The Stono rebellion. What is it? In, it's in North Carolina, right?
1: It, it, South Carolina.
4: South Carolina, and then you have another big rebellion in New York. I know that Africans marched on the city of New Orleans. And that was the thing that I think people need to know about. They need to know that there was a constant fear on the part of the white establishment that these Africans are going to revolt. Of course, the most famous one is the Nat Turner Revolt, or what we call the Nat Turner Revolt. And then you have other uh, insurrections that were planned, much more massive and never got off the ground. And that would be, for example, the revolt, uh, the intended revolt by Denmark Vesey Mm -hmm. in South Carolina, near Charleston, around 1820, 1822. And before then, the um, revolt that was planned by Gabriel Prosser in Virginia in 1800, some say it involved 50,000 people. A lot of this, too, I want to say, and I'll let you go on, is that what? a lot of it was inspired by the Haitian Revolution. We owe the Haitians a lot, and the Haitians have been forced to suffer from the time they revolted. When I was in Haiti, my only visit to Haiti, right before the big earthquake, I spoke at a university, and uh, the university, and after it was over, there was a reception in my honor, and a couple of the university students, a couple of young brothers, maybe about 20 years old, came up to me and, and asked me, they said, uh, "Do you think we should have remained slaves to the French? Maybe we wouldn't have suffered so much." That's the degree of suffering of the Haitians. So, you know, you know more. You probably know more about Stono and the revolt in Louisiana than I do. And I don't want to come across as being super knowledgeable. Only fools know everything, and if I don't know, I'll be quick to tell you. Nope. So you uh, have the edge on me in that
1: regard. Right? Listen, I'm glad that you said that. A lot of <laughs> a lot of folks would just try to wing it. I'm, i that's why I always have a lot of respect for you
4: I don't like to wing it anymore brother, and I think <laughs> it's arrogant when a person acts <laughs> as though they have all the answers i think that's it's a collective effort I know a lot, but together we know so much more
1: okay well let, 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 let's 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 go to one of the men that you did mention because you know I've read some about him, but you that's why I like to talk with historians i mean they they can bring these people to life. Let, let's talk about Denmark, Vesey, and what you do know about him.
4: Well, we don't know a lot about him. There's an a excellent, excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's not a new book, and it's not even written by an African. It's called American Negro Slave Revolts by a man named Herbert Aptheker, And I read that as a university student way back in the 70s, American Negro Slave Revolts by Herbert Aptheker, And he talks about 250 revolts. That's just in the United States, and he documents them year by year and state by state. American Negro Slave revolts by Herbert Apfeker. But other people have written extensively about Denmark Vesey. It took place in South Carolina. South Carolina and Virginia perhaps have more um, uh, history. Well, anyway, I guess all the states were, but South Carolina was very, very, very active. And this uh, revolt was planned around 1822 or so near Charleston. It never got off the ground. It was a snitch. It was very, very complicated. One of the problems, I think, with the, the big revolts, like the Nat Turner, not Nat Turner, but uh, Gabriel Prosser, or Gabriel Revolt, and the Denmark Vesey Revolt, is that they were very complex. They, they, invo- they involved a lot of people. Nat Turner's revolt was, I think, successful because it only in- involved a handful of people. There were fewer things that could go wrong, fewer people that could, would tell the master. Okay. You know, fewer intricacies. So, what we know about Denmark, he was a very dignified man. I think he was a freed slave or former slave. And I think that's important, too, that some of these revolts didn't actually involve it, involved enslaved people per se, but involved people who had been enslaved or had families who were enslaved or had won their freedom or something like that. And so um, it's unfortunate that the one that people talk about the most is is John Brown. But certainly Denmark Vesey comes across as a very dignified man, a man of great intelligence like Toussaint Overture, and it's just unfortunate that um, um, he he wasn't able to carry it off. But the spirit of of rebellion, the spirit of resistance is personified by Denmark Vesey.
1: You know, I've read that David Walker and also Morris Brown and several other men was involved with him. Uh, they escaped when uh, when things fell apart. But, I mean, we've seen David Walker's writings. That, that group that he had must have been full of intelligent black men.
4: Oh, big time, big time. You know, one of the reasons I don't spend more time with David Walker, who lived in Boston, by the way, and he had a house in Boston, um, is because I don't have any images of... Uh, David Walker, you know, you know, a lot of times when I do my presentations, I do visual presentations and I show pictures and I don't have pictures of, of him. Now, there are artist depictions that I use of, of Nat Turner and also Gabriel Prosser, but I am not even aware of a physical description of David Walker or Denmark okay. We, go,
1: You know what? We're going to we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. With historian, researcher, and educator Dr. Renoko Rashidi. And you can give us a call and join the conversation at 215 253 7263. That's 215 253 7263. We'll be right back in a brief minute.
5: tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com.
0: One day When the glory comes It will be
12: Justice is juxtapositioning us Justice for all just ain't specific enough One son died, the spirit is revisiting us True and living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up When it go down, we woman and man up They say stay down, and we stand up Shots, we on the ground, the camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop, and we ran up with the glory. Woman and child, even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They marched with the torch. We gon' run with it now. Never look back. we been gone hundreds of miles from dark robes, heroes to become a hero. Facing the League of Justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal. A king became Rico. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a ball. Ego, the biggest weapon is to stay peaceful. Sing. Our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in a dream we had an epiphany. Now we write the wrongs in history. One day
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening, and we join this evening in conversation with historian, researcher, educator, and anthropologist, Dr. Renoku Rashidi. Dr. Rashidi, let's get back to uh, to what we were talking about just before the break. Um, we were mentioning, and you were talking about Denmark Vesey, Gabriel props and Nat Turner. You know, what, what really bothers me a lot, uh, Dr. Rashidi, is that, especially in the case of Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner, These men were ministers. Uh, They were spreading Christianity at the time. And they did what they did because of the dire circumstances of their people. And the overwhelming majority of ministers today act like these men never existed. They don't talk about them. If you go in the average church or talk to somebody that, that, uh, and they don't even have to be church-going people. If you talk to the average one of us, they know nothing about these men. Nothing about and that really hurts me. Talk about it from your perspective, of these men being what we know now to be religious men, and they're not even talked about by the religious community now.
4: Well, you know, religion, like anything else, can be used to advance the cause of our people, and it can be used to retard the cause of our people. Malcolm X was a Muslim. You know, Garvey, towards the end of his life, to my knowledge, became a Roman Catholic. That's hard for a lot of people to believe.
1: (laughs) You know what? I didn't didn't know that. That's
4: a fact. That's a fact. To me, you know, and I get this virtually every time I do an interview, it always comes down to religion, Christianity, and what have you. To me, you can worship a doorknob if you want to. I'm concerned about what you do. Now, if you do something progressive, I'm for you. If you do something that's not progressive, I'm not for you. I, for me, it. I'm not so much disconcerted by people who don't know. You know, all of us are ignorant to some extent or another. What concerns me is people who know they don't know and are perfectly content to remain ignorant. That's the scary part. I think that we should always be trying to instill in our people a desire to want to know, a desire to learn, a, de- a desire to... Um, acquire knowledge and do something with it. Nat Turner was a Christian. Harriet Tubman, who I want to talk about, you know, very soon was a Christian. But they are not like many of the Christians that we find today. These are activists, and they use religion, you know, Christianity as a vehicle to move our people forward. You know, the church at one time was a progressive institution. I don't see that anymore. In fact, to me, the the black church, speaking generally is one of the uh, most uh, reactive. Um, It's a disgrace in many ways. You have people whose major intent in life is to make money, you know, prosperity preachers and that kind of thing. You know, I very rarely hear any of these people talk about how do we use the church to advance the cause of our community. It's usually about advancing the cause of the pastor, and that's disgusting to me, and it seems to me that the ancestors will be very, very angry at such behavior because we have pimps in the pulpit. Let's tell it like
1: it is. Wow. <laughs> no argument there. Dr. Rashidi, you, you mentioned Harriet Tubman. She was going to be the next, uh, she was and, one of the most influential women that we had here, in, in my opinion, uh, in our, in the country of our former chattel enslavement. But talk about her.
4: Harriet Tubman carried weapons. Harriet Tubman led, as I understand, in the military contingent in the so-called Civil War. Here's a woman without a university degree, wasn't light-skinned, didn't have long hair, you know, very Africoid, you know, who was beaten as a youth, who escaped from slavery, and then went back to get other enslaved Africans, including her husband, who had married another woman. Mary Tubman was really a remarkable person. She is the most famous conductor, as you know, of the Underground Railroad, and she was famous for saying, I rescued hundreds of my people from slavery, and I could have rescued hundreds more if only they had known that there were slaves. What statement better personifies the struggle that we're waging right now? You know, that a lot of people don't want to hear this black stuff. What you talking about? Life is good. You know, I don't have any reason to resist. I ain't from Africa. You hear all this ignorance, and Harry Tubman said it. I rescued hundreds of my people from slavery. I could have rescued hundreds more if only they had known that there were slaves. A, a relatively small black woman, you know, and she is, and a woman at that. I think, again, it gives Harriet Tubman gives us an opportunity, not only to talk about resistance, but, the, but black women and the role that they played in it. And she was not alone. Of course, you have people like Sojourner Truth. Who, when white women were struggling for not emancipation but uh, suffrage, when they were struggling for the right to vote, she is supposed to have said, "Ain't I a woman too?" And you have people like Henry—I'm uh, sorry, Ida B. Wells, Ida B. Wells Barnett, a little bitty sister, born in Mississippi, I think Holly Springs, Mississippi, in July 16th, I think 1862, who was a journalist and a teacher and she reported on the cases of atrocities, committed terrorism, lynchings, burning alive of African people. This sister would carry two or three guns around with her. She was a product of her times in many ways. She referred to her husband in public as Mr. Barnett, but she named her firstborn daughter Ida B. Wells, Jr. <laughs> you have Drusilla Dungey Houston, who wrote the book Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire, the great history book in 1926, but who also covered the... Um, destruction of black wall street so you have many 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 you have a sister named mariah stewart you have the sister named mary ellen pleasant who financed john brown's raid on harper's Ferry, virginia so you have a whole string of black women who play tremendous roles in the resistance movement and whose names we need to elevate to godlike status i think
1: you, you know you just mentioned uh the raid on Harper's Ferry and what I've seen in history and uh, I'm going to throw this to you so you can talk about it uh John Brown met with uh Frederick Douglass and also with Harriet Tubman on a couple of occasions okay yes uh, on several occasions to try to get their involvement with him in Harper's Ferry and you talked about earlier resistance takes all forms we could see uh Reflections now in history that uh, Frederick Douglass or, or uh, Martin Delaney or Harry Tubman did not get involved in the raid at Harpers Ferry. But we could see that one of, uh, history says that one of uh, Frederick Douglass's right-hand men, uh, uh, Shields Green, got involved. He left uh, Frederick Douglass and got involved in Harpers Ferry and was killed. But uh, t- it was black men involved with uh, John Brown and his sons at Harpers Ferry. Uh, talk a little bit about that raid on Harpers Ferry. And one thing that, before you talk about that, one thing that that I just found out, that the the Sons of the Confederacy or something made a big monument to this black man that uh, that stood up and, and ratted, well, he didn't rat because he, he, he was aware that they were coming, that stood up and tried to defend white folks against Harpers Ferry. I don't know his name. His name escapes me. But... It, it, just talk about that raid. Talk about what led up to that raid on Harper's Ferry as you as you know it, Doctor Rashidi.
9: Yeah, what led up to it was slavery. <laughs>
4: Africans <laughs> wanted to be free. And let's face it, <clears throat> there are some white people who have, you know, been active in what might be called the African liberation struggle. Let's 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 give them credit.
9: Mm-hmm. I
4: don't know if John Brown liked black people, loved black people, any of those things, but he thought that slavery was an abomination. And he was willing to fight, and if need be, die for that. You cannot help but respect that.
1: Yeah, you, uh, you know what? I'm glad that you said that. I'm glad that you said that because not only him, what two or three of his sons, they got killed also.
4: No, I take my hat off to them. I mean, you gotta, you gotta respect that. But just like you have some white people who have still on the side of African people, as we know, you have some black people who have stood in the enemy camp. Yes. Yeah. You, know, you have these idiots like Ben Carson today, and this fool on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas. I usually don't call a lot of black people out. <laughs> but these are a couple of exceptions that I just can't, I can't bypass. So we've always had traitors in our midst, you know, and we've always had a handful of Europeans in our midst who stood up for African people. I would say they are more the exception than the rule. Okay. There aren't that many John Browns that we could think of. There are a handful of them, and I salute them. Brother talked about Gerald Massey earlier, one of the greatest, you know, scholars, who wrote, who said Africa, the birthplace and Egypt, the mouthpiece, but in his book Ancient Egypt, the light of the world. But Massey was an exception to the rule, and we don't want to create the impression that Massey was normal or John Brown was normal. Now, you brought up an interesting point about, about people like Delaney, and Douglas himself and Harriet Tubman, who weren't on that raid. Mm-hmm. And it could be, just like you have some of us now, some of us believe that Africans are the only people that can liberate Africans, and that there may be well meaning white people that, in fact, have a role of some sort to play in African liberation. I respect those people who get out, who get out there, these white people, when a black person is shot down in cold blood and will protest and demonstrate against that. But I also believe that there are some things that Africans must do for themselves and by themselves. And ultimately, we are the only ones that can liberate us. Ultimately, we are the only ones that can write the history of African people. And so I'm only speculating, but it could be that that's why we don't see the names of some of our most prominent African leaders who were more actively involved in that raid in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. But it's certainly a pivotal point in American history. The raid on Harpers Ferry, Virginia, is the single most important event that led to what we call the Civil War. And I salute John Brown, but certainly we don't want John Brown to obscure the names of the africans
11: who fought
1: to liberate other africans yes there were many of them let's uh we got about five more minutes left let's go to 215 area code what's your name where are you calling from
11: hey brother elliot how you doing my brother how are you sir i'm doing fine hey brother reg hey how you doing i'm doing fine hey brother
3: bro how doing, brother
11: hey how you doing, doing joe i'm doing fine brother. Bro. hey brother rashidi how you doing good brother
4: all
9: right
4: now,
11: you've taken up about one of the five minutes now, brother. <laughs> so got <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's all good, but if it's shit is all I, I, I only have only had one comment anyway. That's one when you when you just mentioned about the fools list. You said you mentioned Ben Carson and Clans Towers. Did you mention the other fool, Because um, I just had to go to the phone to the, the, the call y'all, did y'all mention the other fool, Allen West? That's another dangerous Negro. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, oh that's man, true. Oh let me tell you brother, that cat is no joke. See, i said some of our people think they, they either take that cat lightly or they done a way I tell brother Ellie and Reggie all the time and stuff, that cat is dangerous. If that negro could drop a bomb on black folks, he would. That is a dangerous Mick Norman, I want our people that's listening around the country to know Alan West, that Negro is no joke, brother. He got the stain for black people. I just want to put that out there in closing, okay? All
4: right, we appreciate that. He's a worthy person to add to the list.
11: <laughs> hey, thanks, Brother uh, Rashidi. Y'all brothers, keep on keeping on. Peace and love.
1: Thank you for your call, Jeff. You're
11: welcome.
1: Brother Rashidi, we're coming up on the uh, the top of the aisle and the end of the program. Um, before you leave us this evening, it was an interesting discussion, and it can continue on because we missed a lot of people. I'm kind of glad we did kind of target or highlight some of our people involved in the struggle. Uh, before you give out your information again, Talk about your future, what you plan to do in 2015, where you plan to go. Oh, but you know, before you mention that, because you talked earlier about your visits to Colombia and you've seen that the uh, people there were very anxious uh, for a lot of the knowledge and to become more conscious. Talk about, you know, because when you travel other places, besides uh, Colombia and other places around the world, do you seem to... Do you see the same veracity of our people to know who they are?
4: I would say that wherever African people are the struggle, is very similar. You have some Africans who are very, very anxious to acquire knowledge of self. Okay. And you have others who are much more complacent. In Colombia, <clears throat> I was inspired by this desire to know. I think that it's possible that we can... Ta- I think that all people essentially want to feel proud of themselves that they want to feel like they made a contribution to the world, that they have a history beyond enslavement. And I think that we have a duty and an obligation to try to tap into that. Some of us have closed our minds like we close a window or a door for fear that a new idea might come in. But wherever I go, I also find that there are people hungry for knowledge of self, and those are the ones that we want to tap into. That's our army. That's our base. I think that, as I've said before, what you do for yourself depends on what you think of yourself, and what you think of yourself depends on what you know of yourself, and what you know of yourself depends on what you have been told. We have a glorious history. We have a history of resistance. We have a history of rebellion. And I think that that's something that we can all take a great deal of pride in. For those who want to get in touch with me, again, I encourage you to email me at Renoco at hotmail.com, R U N O K O at hotmail.com. Go to my website, A Work in Progress. It's Or You can always call me at 210-232-7272. I want to thank you, brothers, for having me on again. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, Happy Black History Month 2015. We've only scratched the surface, but I think we had a good discussion, and I'm really, really honored and flattered that you chose to have me on tonight.
1: Dr. Rashidi, before you go, just give us a little... uh highlight of where you're going to be this summer, this fall, your travels. Just tell us how they can get involved. I'm mm-hmm. uh,
4: working with an African travel agency. The first tour is to northern and southern Ethiopia. That's in May, if this year begins May 1st. And then in July, I think it's the 8th to the 17th, I have an African heritage tour of Mexico. We see the Olmec heads. Perhaps we'll get to see all of the Olmec heads on this trip and African heritage in terms of enslaved Africans. Mexico is rich in terms of African heritage. That's in July. In November, I'm taking a group to Brazil at the African Heritage Month in Brazil. Um, November 21st, I think, is the day that Zumbi was executed there, in fact. And then in December, I take a group to, God willing, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia. So, again, I repeat, if you're interested in any of those things, please go to my website, renokorashidi.com, email me at renoko at hotmail.com, or give me a call at 210-232-7272. I want to thank you for being with us, sir. Thank you. You all take care. I look forward to the next time. Hotel.
1: We'll take a brief break. We'll be right back. Antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening. Sundays, 7 p.m. Welcome back. Your host, Elliot. It's time for an awakening. And, uh, Brother Ridge, Brother Ralph. It yes, just, sir. Yes. Interesting discussion this evening. Dr. Bashidi, it's always interesting when he comes on. And, uh,. <laughs> Uh, what can I say? I mean, it, it speaks for itself. I, I'm I'm glad that he shares a lot of this information because it's like a classroom when he comes on. It's it's always interesting when we bring the historians on. And uh, before this month is out, although we, we bring historians on any time during the year, I, I plan to try to reach out to uh, Dr. Brown or, or one of the other historians and bring them on also to give a uh, give a little balance, give a little more, go a little deeper. But uh, anything you want to mention before we leave tonight? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'd like to mention that when we were uh, talking about the UNIA earlier, Mm -hmm. Marcus Garvey, the UNIA off of Cecil B. Moore Avenue in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Uh, Brother Battle uh, was a very integral part of the UNIA here in Philadelphia. He transitioned uh, late last week. I just found out on uh, last Thursday. Okay. So I'd like to send out condolences uh,
1: to the brothers and sisters
3: at the local UNIA in Philadelphia. PA on be Moore Avenue, and also to his family.
1: Any any word on the arrangements or anything of that nature?
3: No, I have someone that should
1: be uh, getting sending me some information. Soon I'll post it. Okay. Brother Ralph, any closing things?
5: No, nah, everything's good on my end, uh, Elliot. Um, well, good just, discussion tonight. Really enjoyed it. Wrote down a lot, so
1: I good didn't discussion. Get, I didn't get a chance to... Uh, to talk about your review of Whitewater but maybe we'll, oh. do, we'll do that next week <laughs> yeah you know
9: what
5: matter of fact put it out there to the listeners if any of them saw that Whitewater I mean uh, unbelievable man what, what they're putting on TV as far as propaganda uh, we, I, I think we need Dr. Jared Ball back cause some of the stuff that's coming at our people man um, is a disgrace um, you know and, and, and our people think it's entertainment I mean they're, they're being lulled to sleep by a lot of immoral nonsense but they say it's entertainment so what can I say if it's entertaining them, I can't say nothing you know
1: <laughs> I want to thank everybody for participating in the program this evening lively discussion as always we'll be back next week Lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening peace
2: So unaware of, I know, I know, the thing that they'll soon have to take care of. We've got to do something, yeah, to save the children. Such a small